Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today... Episode number 22, titled Talking Leaves and Lightning Paper, wherein we discuss what one man did to help preserve his native tongue. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Splendid. Thank you. Yourself? I'm great. I'm great. A couple of quick things to get to before we start this week's episode. First, I want to read you an iTunes review that offers a kind of gentle critique I think, but a really good suggestion. It's from Oakland Richard. And he says, I just have to get something off my chest. Why does Bob end the show with the plaintive, are we done? Bob sounds like he suddenly lost interest in the whole idea of language and has the urge to move on to more pressing matters. I have enough of this impatience at work. I really don't need it in my favorite podcast. Could Bob just end the podcast with a gracious, thank you once again, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like it. Well, that's an interesting sentiment. And Oakland, I uh, thank you, first of all, for listening. And I appreciate the suggestion. And all I can say is don't wish your life away. <laughs> by the time <laughs> by the time Lexicon Valley is over, I got other things I got to do. And while I've had a fantastic 36 minutes, I want to spend my 37th minute elsewhere, having an equal amount of fun. So uh, probably, yeah, I'm probably not going to accommodate you. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We still have, you know, 20 some odd minutes to go. Maybe you'll change your mind. One more thing. Our last episode was about the debate over whether to use illegal or undocumented or some other term when describing people in the context of immigration. We got a lot of very thoughtful feedback which I think, Bob, you've read through more so than I. So I'm going to ask you to summarize where listeners fell on this issue. Well, it was pretty much split with a slight minority siding with me on my wish that we don't try to solve political problems by fiddling with language. It seldom works. And if it does work, it doesn't work for long. And new euphemistic words begin to take on all of the baggage and the stigma of the words they've replaced. The other side of the argument, the one you took up, is that calling undocumented immigrants illegals is not only stigmatizing, 
but it turns a perhaps legitimate adjective into a noun and depersonalizes, indeed dehumanizes individuals, many of whom are here illegally through no fault of their own. And that is a path to hell. In fact, their arguments were so persuasive that, you know, I'm beginning to give way a little bit on my position. Yeah, and I noticed that there were a number of people who suggested sort of splitting the difference, using illegal when talking about immigration, but using undocumented when talking about immigrants, because they agreed that using illegal, whether as an adjective or a noun, to describe people has a kind of dehumanizing effect when you place it in the larger context of the other language that's used to describe people who are here unlawfully. So that's one option, I suppose. I'm not sure that I will do that. I might still use undocumented or come up with some other way to phrase my sentiment. And I should say that this evaluation is based on the responses we got from our Gmail address, slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. This does not include the online comment thread on our webpage at Slate, because it turns out when people post comments online, really what they're doing is just working out anger management issues. <laughs> so this is a narrow slice of self-selecting people who chose to write us. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the phenomenon you just described is not unique to Lexicon Valley and is a pathology that has confounded many in the media who don't want to monopolize the conversation but are appalled by you know what comes in over the transom. In fact, we talked about this a few years ago on on the media. It's called online disinhibition effect. And you know, I wonder if an alien species were to judge us by our online comment threads alone, like what would they think of us? <laughs> Just the most savage, brutal race of people. Uh, it's not surprising when you run across this stuff on political sites or sporting sites. When, you know, being a Dallas Cowboys fan qualifies you for the worst kind of recriminations and so forth. But you would think that there are areas that were somewhat immune, like the arcana of language and, oh, I don't know, classical music discussion boards. But, oh, no. No. You know, you say a kind word about Schoenberg and you were going to get flamed by the Tchaikovsky crowd. I mean, it's a suicidal act. So – it's not our burden alone here at uh, Lexicon Valley. I bet there are knitting forums that are filled with the most vile, <laughs> vitriolic <laughs> aspersions you could possibly conjure up. Knit one, pearl two. Knit one, pearl two. You moron! <laughs> All right. Today's episode. As I just mentioned, Lexicon Valley uses Gmail, the Google cloud-based email service. And you and I both use Gmail in our personal lives, Bob. If you've ever tinkered with the settings, you might know that you can change the Gmail interface to any of about 50 some odd languages, and you can send and receive emails in those languages, even if they don't use the Latin alphabet, like Russian or Hebrew, because what Google has done is create virtual keyboards that pop up on your screen that you can then use to type in Cyrillic or other alphabets. As of just about two weeks ago, Gmail, for the first time, added this sort of support for a Native American language, Cherokee. Now, the story of how Cherokee became a written language to begin with, with its own alphabet, is unlike any other language's backstory. It's not a story, certainly, that I learned growing up in the public schools of northern New Jersey, and I suspect not one that most Americans ever learned. And so I wanted to devote 
this episode to simply telling some of that story. Mike, uh, same here. Uh, now, we had very different education experiences. You grew up in Jersey, and I am from Pennsylvania. But it, it's not just us. My guess is that most Native Americans really are unfamiliar with this tale. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Not most Cherokee, I would guess, but most Native Americans. To tell this story, I've enlisted the help of April Summit. She's a historian at Arizona State University who earlier this year wrote a book that pulls together much of what we know or think we know about a man named Sequoia, who is the central figure in this story, you could say. Just a bit of background, the story takes place in what is now the western part of North Carolina, the easternmost part of Tennessee, and the northernmost part of Georgia. The region where all three of those states now meet was where, in the 18th century, most Cherokee lived. And it was there that Sequoia was born, most likely in the 1760s. His mother was full Cherokee, and his father, whom it seems he didn't know and certainly didn't grow up with, was reputed to be half Cherokee and half white, or perhaps a quarter white. All right, Mike, what I do know about Native American history, American history, I guess, is that in those days, in this place, which was pretty much the western frontier, there was plenty of interaction among Indians and white people, mostly for trade, Mm -hmm. which led to, among other things, uh, intermarriage. So the conjecture that Sequoia is part white is by no means beyond the pale. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, both of Sequoia's parents were traders. His mom ran what we might think of as a general goods store. Sequoia himself was reported to be very artistic growing up. He was good at drawing, and he carved out a career making things as a silversmith. Now, in the very early 1800s, many Cherokee did a stint in the military. Sometimes they were warring against other tribes. Sometimes they were fighting on the side of the United States against the British, like in the War of 1812. And April Summit told me that it was during his own military service that Sequoia first got inspired to turn Cherokee into a written language. The story is that somewhere in his military service, He had a conversation with a group of soldiers who were standing around one day talking about an incident that had happened where a prisoner had been captured and a message had been found on this prisoner. Well, what was this piece of paper? What was this document that this soldier had? And how could someone look at it and understand what it was supposed to mean? And the general consensus was they must be magic. These talking leaves must be something that special medicine men amongst the white people conjure up to speak. How else could that happen? Sequoia, as the story goes, Sequoia said, no, 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 it's, it's nothing magic at all. It's pretty easy to figure out. They have symbols. They make a drawing like I can draw a horse to represent a word, and they put it together, and then the leaves can talk this way, but anyone can read them. <laughs> And, of course, the debate went on, the story goes, and Sequoia left the conversation thinking to himself, well, I will prove to them that it's not magic. In fact, that's a good idea. I could do this for my own language. Keep in mind, Bob, that Sequoia was monolingual. He spoke only Cherokee, so he didn't read or write. You could say, I guess he was illiterate, although preliterate seems like the more appropriate term. Now, Bob, imagine... And this is hard to do. Imagine if you wanted to create a writing system for your spoken language, 
you know it's possible because you know there's at least one other language out there with such a system, but you don't know how it works. Where do you begin, right? How do you go about creating these talking leaves? Hmm. I would imagine it would start with representation of things like cave drawings or hieroglyphics or something. Well, we know a bit about Sequoia's process, which took place over the course of about 10 or 12 years, we think, because a journalist later interviewed him. Here's April Summit. Sequoia said, well, I started out creating symbols that would represent full words, but that became impossible. So I looked at other ways to represent sound and tried to collect all of the sounds within the Cherokee language, much more like an alphabet, a traditional alphabet. He spent years actually working with the idea of one separate symbol for each separate sound. Years during which both his wife and his friends did not necessarily look favorably upon this project. (laughs) Right. They all thought he was a crazy man. What is this crazy Sequoia doing? First of all, they thought he was shirking his duty as a husband, tending the farm and so forth. He's leaving us all to his wife. Others thought perhaps he was trying to conjure some kind of bad medicine, that maybe he was engaging in witchcraft. So he was looked upon at least as a bum who spent all of his time sitting in this little cabin writing strange symbols on paper that wasn't worth anything. And at worst, then, some kind of a secret black magic man who was trying to uh, create power in some strange and mysterious way for himself. And in fact, there's an account that his wife may have even, you know, burned his work at some point. (laughs) Right. And if you think about it, that's probably a pretty credible story, because if he was working on an alphabet that many years so many hours of labor, she probably did become very, very frustrated and furious with him. And yes, the word is that she burned his papers and he had to start from scratch, that it had slowed down his progress for a couple of years. What's odd, though, by all accounts, he remained sort of placidly undeterred throughout people making fun of him, throughout his wife's complaining. Right. He just was single-minded in this purpose. Yes, it's pretty amazing. It certainly shows an interesting mind and a determination. I mean, he was witnessing the gradual and then more rapid loss of territory, of independence, and of culture around him. A lot of the Cherokee were becoming more and more like their white neighbors. They were living in log cabins now instead of earlier structures that were made of woven mats covered with mud, much like an adobe. Now they're clearing fields and engaging in agriculture instead of hunting and gathering. Some of his fellow Cherokee were wealthy plantation owners who even owned slaves. So there was a lot of emulation of white culture around him that he would have witnessed. And I think in many ways his interest in creating this written syllabary for his own language was an effort to preserve it, to claim it as... Cherokee, and to say, hey, this is something that is ours. Mike, i got to say, this so reminds me of something. Many, many years ago, in, in excess of 20, I did a piece on uh, All Things Considered about this guy who believed to the core of his being that the song American Pie by Don McLean, that it was a biblical prophecy of some sort of nuclear Armageddon, if I recall correctly, involving Russians carrying uh, backpack nukes. But he devoted years of his life 
to annotating every word, every syllable, every breath in this very long song. His wife never burned his series of 12 audio tapes that he published on the project, uh, but she did leave him, and he was there <laughs> in his double wide doing God's work. Well, I think we'll agree that Sequoia's project was a bit more fruitful in the end. <laughs> and if you noticed, April Summit referred at the very end of that clip to what Sequoia ultimately created as a syllabary. He tried creating separate characters for each individual word, sort of like the way traditionally that Chinese works, but he scrapped that idea. He tried creating separate characters for each individual sound or phoneme, sort of like the way our alphabet works. But finally, he found that it was most useful to create individual characters for each syllable in Cherokee, which is more or less the way Japanese writing works. So in the space of a few years... He experimented with all of the basic alphabet systems that man had toyed with for millennia until he came up with the solution, completely independent of all of mankind's previous learning. Yeah. And what did these characters look like? I mean, did they look anything like Roman letters? Did they look like hieroglyphics? Did they look like uh, Chinese or Japanese or Korean? What? If you go into your Gmail settings, you can actually activate the Cherokee virtual keyboard and see for yourself what these characters look like. More about this in just a minute. I want to take a break and talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on just about any device that you have. Audible has a special offer if you're a Lexicon Valley listener. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you'll get one audiobook of your choice. You have to visit the URL audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. You know, sometimes I recommend a book to use as that free option. And I think, Bob, a really good one for people to listen to would be Bedfellows. I didn't realize that there was an audio version of Bedfellows. I just figured that out a couple of days ago, and I listened to some of it. It's great. I don't know who the guy really? is who narrates it, but he actually does sort of street voices for the characters you created. You know, I knew there was an audio book, and I know the actor's name. It is Alan Marriott, mm -hmm. but I couldn't bring myself to listen because I was afraid that he was going to, you know, just put all the emphasis on the wrong syllables and, <laughs> and miss the characters. And I just was trepidatious, I guess. And so, well, thank you for listening. So it's good, huh? Yeah, it's really good. He really kind of gets into the characters, but he doesn't overdo it, I would say. It's not hammy. He sort of gives them a kind of Brooklyn feel. So if you sign up for an Audible membership, it includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try. Use the URL that Audible set up. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Well, thanks for the plug, dude. But uh, we were discussing the Cherokee alphabet. While you were doing the ad, I looked at the characters. And to me, they look like some sort of cross between Cyrillic you know, like the Russian alphabet and the Serbian, Croatian, and so forth, and Hebrew. <laughs> okay, so where did Sequoia get the inspiration for the characters he created, of which there are about 85? Here's April Summit again. The story is that he used a, an old spelling book that he had found along the side of the road somewhere, 
an English spelling book and he, not being able to read it, used some of the letters in that spelling book as a pattern for his own characters, turned some of them sideways, upside down, backward, as we would say. Some of them look like Greek characters even. Yeah, some characters that look very Greek indeed. So now he has an alphabet, basically a syllabary that Mm -hmm. represents the language in written form, but he has to prove it. So he's the only one who knows it. So what does he do? He teaches it to his six-year-old daughter and then uses her to demonstrate his syllabary. He sets up a public meeting in the council house. Everybody comes to see what the crazy Sequoia has been up to. We know he's the crazy man. Oh, yes, he's been working on this secret formula for all of these years. He's going to demonstrate it. Let's all go see. His daughter then left the room and Sequoia asks from the audience, as a magician might do, okay, so tell me a word or a phrase, whatever you want. Then he writes it down with his new syllabary. Then his daughter comes into the room and reads it back to the audience. Whoa. <laughs> right? And, of course, as we might all be skeptical sometimes of magicians, a lot of them have said, it's a trick. It's a trick. What is the trick? How did he do it? She couldn't really have done that. Surely she knew he gave her some kind of sign. There was lots of skepticism, so much so that Sequoia realized, well, no one's really taking me up on this idea. So he said, okay, all right, going to do another test. You give me a couple of young men that you choose, and I will teach them my syllabary, and then you can decide what you think. A couple months later... After he had taken these young men and trained them in his new alphabet, they did another similar demonstration where phrases were spoken and Sequoia writes them down and the young men come into the room and they read them and back and forth for a good little spell of time, perhaps, until finally his audience is won over and believes that these talking leaves were perhaps not so magical. And then he proceeded to teach everybody he could how to read it. And people were eager to learn. Yes, they were. I mean, very quickly, the people there saw that this could be a really important tool. This was their language, and suddenly there was a way to write it and to communicate with someone from a distance. There had been a number of Cherokees who had already moved west to what we now know as Arkansas. So there were letters being written and travelers taking communications back and forth between Cherokees in the West and Cherokees still back in the homelands in the East in Sequoia syllabary for a good number of years before the printing press was actually established. Yeah, so about six or seven years after he creates this syllabary, the Cherokee Nation acquires a printing press. Right. And a lot of the reason for that was Samuel Worcester, the missionary who came to minister to the Cherokee. Now, more about that printing press in a couple of minutes. But first, I just want to mention that in the early to mid-1800s, there were many missionaries of many different denominations trying to convert Native Americans to Christianity. To properly do this, many groups thought, you had to teach them English. Well, duh, Mike, as we all know, English Is the language of civilized people, not the heathen. (laughs) And as a practical matter, if the Bible's in English, how are you going to teach anybody else the right way of thinking if not in English? 
But Samuel Worcester, the missionary that April Summit mentioned, who became a real champion of the Cherokee and, in fact, of their right to sovereignty, he said, yes, we want to convert them to Christianity. We're missionaries, after all. But we don't need to force English on them. We can translate the Bible, and they can read it in their own language. That's probably even preferable, he said. So his group started transcribing the Bible phonetically into Cherokee using English letters. It seems like actually a very good strategy, rather than having to teach somebody an entirely new language in order to inculcate them with foreign values. Why not meet them halfway by giving them the foreign values in a language they can understand? But why the transliteration? Why didn't they use full Cherokee? Because they didn't know it existed. Eventually, Worcester found out about this syllabary and was surprised and said, oh, okay, let's just use this. This will be easier. You mean he wasn't aware that there was a written Cherokee language, so he did the best he could by doing a transliterated one in English, Mm -hmm. only later to discover that Sequoia had done his work for him and then some. Right. And so in about 1827, which is just five or six years after Sequoia is thought to have finished his syllabary, Cherokee appears for the first time in print in Worcester's missionary magazine called the Missionary Herald. It was the first five verses of the book of Genesis. Well, first of all, that's a kind of a dirty trick because, you know, you read the five paragraphs and you want to know how the story is going to come out. <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, I'm wondering, he printed the first part of Genesis with what typeface? Where did he get a typeface for Cherokee? Worcester asked his missionary group to fund a printing press that would then be owned by the Cherokee, and they did. Worcester himself cast the type. Within a year, it began publishing the Cherokee Phoenix, which was the first Native American newspaper and one of the first bilingual newspapers. And in fact, the Phoenix, through the 1830s, played a really important role in Cherokee arguing against removal. Many of the Indians were being forced to move west because whites wanted the land. They thought that they weren't using it well. And the Cherokee were one of the last holdouts. They held up as evidence that they shouldn't be removed from that sort of North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee area. The fact that they had assimilated, that they had their own newspaper, that they had their own alphabet, for God's sake, that only worked for so long. And finally, in 1838... There was the infamous Trail of Tears, and the Cherokee were forcibly removed west to what is now Oklahoma. By the way, the Phoenix still exists today. It hasn't been published continuously, but it was revived in the 20th century. It's now a monthly online and I think also as a broadsheet. Most of the articles are now in English, although some are also fully in the Cherokee syllabary, this alphabet that is entirely the product of one illiterate, monolingual man in the 1820s. And, you know, we talked about those original written messages being referred to as talking leaves by the Cherokee. 200 years later, an email is translated into Cherokee as lightning paper. <laughs> now, Mike, I while you were talking, I took a look at the Cherokee Phoenix online at CherokeePhoenix.org. And, you know, we began this podcast by talking about being dehumanized 
by language, and we ended it by talking about the Trail of Tears, which was accomplished by portraying Native Americans as some sort of lesser species to be herded into reservations. But looking at CherokeePhoenix.org, I think I can prove that the Cherokee Nation is not only not inferior, but superior to the race that enslaved it. You know how I know? I am afraid to ask. (laughs) No comment sections. Oh, 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 I think you're on to something. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. I know. Why has Slate not picked up on this? (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to send a copy of this paper to management and at WNYC as well. All right. Well, if you want to send us an email, you can do so at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. Feel free to tell us whether or not you think online comment threads should be done away with. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please, if you have not already, subscribe to our feed in iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And while there, please leave a rating and a review. I want to thank April Summit. Her book, published just this year, is Sequoia and the Invention of the Cherokee Alphabet. I want to also thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. Are we, uh, wait, I beg your pardon. Have we satisfactorily <laughs> completed our assignment? No, I think what Oakland Richard suggested was that you thank me once again. We done here? <laughs> yeah, we're done. Later, Gator.